Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. On this special segment of our episodes, we go into the liberated life interviews. Now, Zen Stoic is a philosophy that aims at creating liberation, but it itself is not liberation. It is merely a vehicle to get there. And just like the Buddha said, a finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. And on these episodes, we go beyond the bounds of Zen Stoic philosophy and interview people from all different walks of life on what it means to live a liberated life. On this segment of the Liberated Life Interviews, I have the great pleasure of interviewing my dear friend, Stuart Savatsky. Stuart has been a practitioner of Kundalini Yoga for over 24 years and is the director of two psychotherapy clinics in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's a former presenter at the World Congress on Sexology in India and the International Kundalini Research Network. He teaches at JFK University and the California Institute of Integral Studies. This episode is packed with profound wisdom and success stories of Stuart's work over the last 50 years, where he's been able to help juvenile delinquents turn their lives around. He's been able to help families come together, save marriages, help couples to start beautiful families, and ultimately help people go beyond just solving their problems and into creating a beautiful and compelling future. We take a deep dive on the power of gratitude and how it is able to help us shape our lives for the better. Stuart also takes us through a deep dive of admiration therapy and how he's used it to turn the lives of people around and prevent them from going to prison. Even people who were so close to ruining their lives by doing heinous acts, Stuart was able to not just get them to refrain from those acts, but to completely turn their lives around and transform into these beautiful experiences. And lastly, Stuart gets into some really interesting visionary solutions that he believes could help us solve some of the big problems that we have today in our society. It was an incredibly enjoyable experience to interview Stuart, and I am very grateful for my friendship with him. This is truly a special episode of the Zen Stoic Path. Enjoy. Okay, Stuart. So before we actually jumped on air, we were discussing ethics and how ethics are an integral piece towards living a liberated life. And you had some really interesting things to say about that. So I'm curious, like, what is your view on that and how it fits into uh, one's liberation? Are we at recording yet? Yes, we are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. What I think is we have words like integrity, which have become part of the everyday vocabulary of a path that uses everyday life as a path to enlightenment. So integrity means you're living consistent with your values. In terms of success, we've seen how values can be either helpful or people lose touch with their values. And then years later, they realize they wish that they hadn't made certain mistakes, mainly with pleasure and, and often with money and and contractual agreements. That's where business, I think, uh, has its challenge. <laughs> Staying true, no matter how a business is going, and I have my principles, I'll just introduce one that I learned mm. or I taught myself, which is friendship was more important than outcomes. I, I would go into, I, went, I did, my biggest business project was a, this $34 million green build before there was green <laughs> in the late 1990s. And I went into it thinking, I want my partner and I to be friends no matter what. And that really guided me to helping our organization go well. Because yes. the temptations in a big project like that where money's going back and forth and green, nobody knew what it was. So the banks were turning us down and, and we couldn't find properties. And a lot of frustrations was 
this ethic of friendship that was going to prevail. And that kept the, the interactions I had with my colleagues, and they may not have had this ethic. They had lawyers, they were trying to sue each other all along. And it was a mess, as some of these projects can be, that are ahead of their times. There's no track record how this is going to go. Now, right. of course, everybody loves green and it's a high premium. But back in then, so what am I getting at is, yeah, the staying true to the value of friendship and business, mm. to me, it's just one example of exactly. integrity where you're balancing, yeah, we want to be successful, but not at the cost of friendship. And somehow the project is completely built. Green City Lofts oh, exists, <laughs> 70,000 square feet, state of the art. It's just a little example of what I meant by integrity and ethic. I love that example, especially because I feel like a lot of us, we get lost in our abstractions of what we consider to be success or valuable in our lives. And sometimes business success is one of those, at least one of those that's definitely very prevalent here in North America, and I'm sure all over the world. And it, what you're saying reminds me of something that Seneca actually wrote, where he talked about the the only reason that you should want to be friends with someone is a mutual proclivity towards one another and everything beyond that. And I'm, of course I'm paraphrasing, but everything beyond that is really a bonus. It's not the heart and soul of the friendship. And what's interesting is I actually began this podcast, like in some of the first earlier episodes, talking about friendship and talking about how in, when it comes to matters of business and friendship, that it's important to not try to buy yourself points in friendship through business and not try to buy yourself points in business through friendship, because then we start to muddy the waters and the convolution there makes it difficult to know where the relationship stands between the two of you. So I love that you went in very intentionally, very sincerely to say, no matter what, we're going to stay friends. So it guided your decision. So if there's a decision that fulfilled maybe a temptation towards greed, it was overruled by the decision to remain friends no matter what. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And there were times where, like what you're saying, the proclivities were pretty minimal because it was so tense. It was never that mood where, fuck, uh, if I use the F word. Oh, no, you can say whatever you want. You know, I'm out of here. No, it was to be first things first. Yeah. So it was definitely tested in the real world. One example, but that was only one of my projects. My main work area was in mental health. And the story that I wanted to tell you about proceeding ethically had to do with a profiled shooter. And I bring it up because it's obviously been in the news the last more than 10 years of people who make claims publicly that they're going to kill other people. And then what do we do about it? And with younger people, not enough is done. And then some few, probably among the many who say crazy things, will actually do it. Mm -hmm. And they make the headlines. And then we wonder, how did this ever happen? Yes. So back around 2015, I had a referral about someone who had made comments that he hoped somebody would come into his house so he could shoot them. Mm. And he did it in a mental health setting. So that was red flags, as we call it. And I was called in to consult or intervene. <clears throat> and my ethic was based in having worked in the prison system about 25 or 30 years ago. That if we call the police, the probabilities of him becoming a shooter go way up. Yes. That the general public 
is maybe if I say it, suddenly everybody's aware. Yeah, you call the police and we think, oh, take, let's get this guy out of here. Unless you put him in prison for the rest of his life, which doesn't happen for something like th this. Correct. Uh, he's person's going to have a, a, a master's degree in crime by the time he comes out. Plus, he's going to have almost nothing to lose uh, leaving prison. So recidivism, we know, is high. So this is in the back of my mind, not in anyone else's, that my ethic is this should never happen, not just not now. And another aspect of ethic that I found in mental health that was very lacking in my field. I should say I was the president of my professional organization for 16 years and did projects with the Dalai Lama based on what I'm now getting into. And I've been in, I was in the post-Balkan war zone after, in the, uh, when was that, the late around 2000, meeting with the president, actually, of that country about these violent kinds of situations in the aftermath, what to do. And that's what I'm bringing to bear upon this situation. And so I want the highest outcome. And I think that is worth our listeners pondering and me saying a little bit about. In my field, diagnosing or preventing the shooting is often like the highest defined goal. I had a referral about someone who had made comments that he hoped somebody would come into his house so he could shoot them. Mm. It's, it doesn't aim high enough. And what I saw over and over again is that there's an irony or a paradox. The higher your goal, you aim your goal, the easier it is to accomplish. So with the building project, we could have done a $5 million green build of a couple houses or something. But we just, and we didn't have a funding. When you do 35 million, you attract a lot of attention, a lot of interest. So that's where I learned, yeah, in many other areas. So in this shooting situation, I, my goal was this person and I are going to end up friends. His life is going to blossom in his field of profession. And the whole community around who he completely scared the wits out of with this comment are going to appreciate him. But it's going to take probably a year or two, but that's the North Star that will guide me. And wow. what happened was the, really the, one of the hardest interventions I had because it was so, the stakes were so high. How do I know he isn't going to shoot somebody? Everybody around me believed he might. They wanted him fired. They wanted the police called in. They wanted me fired once they saw that I wasn't going to fire this person, <clears throat> that I was going to see it through. And I couldn't tell them I, what I just told you because I feared that they would think I had my head in the cloud. Right. And I didn't. Yeah, it, it does sound, it sounds like that if somebody's not appreciating that whole notion of not just going to par, but going beyond what the standard or at least the minimum viable acceptable outcome would be. It's really interesting. I have a metaphor on that when you're done with this story that I'd love to share. Sure, sure. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, yeah. just to cut to the chase, it was about 20 or something sessions, and I had to monitor this person every day with other helpers that were watching in and being sure that he was staying basically sane and not impulsive, and managed the staff, which was nine people of this agency, and then six board members who also wanted me fired. So it was very stoic. I really could tell anyone what I, my plan, because uh, I thought that I just wanted to stay focused. And a year later, during which those 20 sessions, I was mainly praising this guy and guiding him that he had a life worth living. And I never talked about the gun comment. I didn't want to him to feel pressured by me or intimidated. This the whole, but that was the point. 
Because once you start talking about it, you just sound like another police officer. And yeah, I can call the police anytime I want. There's no uh, restriction on me. But I instead, I just built in his mind, which he, it's easy to do, that he has a life worth living. And he has a life worth not getting it lost in prison. But I never talked about that. I just talked about his aspirations. But at the very, about a year into it, when, I, when the timing for other reasons came about, we, I said, we're, you know why we were meeting? And he said, not exactly. Was it that gun comment I made? And I said, yeah. And I thanked him for trusting me for the whole year because I, he gave me a chance to protect his life. And I said, yeah, look at the life you have. It's not worth getting messed up. And I said, I used to work in the prisons and people in there are like, they're not that different than us. It's not a Hollywood movie. They're very tragically did a mistake. And he burst into tears. Wow. And he said, you mean if I had done something like hurt somebody for any reason, it would be like hurting just another human being. And I said, yeah. And he, and he was a big guy. He was probably in a 180 range weight, big Midwestern guy. And he was weeping in my office. And then I was able to say, I don't think you're ever going to hurt anybody. And now it's been uh, six years and I am his friend. <laughs> and well, the agent quite a transformation. <laughs> the agency <laughs> that hated the agency that was really quite, they, one of the, come to the staffs, actually, they were so angry, spittle came out of their mouth onto my face mm. when they were so frustrated with me. So it was extremely difficult. But at the end, a year after he's gone, they gave me an award. There's a plaque in the office. I was flown to Italy to present on this case because it was such a dramatic turnabout. Harvard University Press got interested. They had an open file on my book on this case. But now you get the full picture. It was by aiming high yeah. and sustaining it. And when the timing was right, that I could make a statement that got to his heart and it all turned out well. That's beautiful. That's an amazing transformation. And it reminds me of so many things. One, one notion that I've been learning about recently as I pursue goals in my own business is this idea that big goals and small goals are just as difficult to achieve. So you might as well go for something bigger because you're going to put in the same amount of effort <laughs> that you do because it's your time and it's your energy. So relatively speaking, it's the same thing to you. It just mentally what do you allow yourself to be capable of and how far do you allow yourself to stretch? So I think that's a really interesting concept. The other thing that I think is really interesting here is that whole idea of not just stopping at where you need to be when it comes to this idea of what's the problem you want to solve or what's the solution. Just getting to the minimum viable solution is not really enough. It reminds me of something that you and I both share, which is a background in wrestling. If you take a double leg shot on somebody and you stop like right in front of them, instead of trying to shoot through them, you're going to get sprawled on. You're never going to actually execute the takedown. So it's really interesting how we have these metaphors woven into our lives and just the things that we do. I think about the same thing in martial arts. You don't just, if we're breaking a board, let's say, you don't just stop at the board, you, you go right through it. So it's interesting how just by having that intention, what you're projecting onto him is actually empowering for his, his own blossoming and awakening and widening of his perspective. I've been playing with this concept a lot recently of perception is projection, right? You and I have a mutual friend or two mutual friends, Scott and Joni, that they teach NLP and I've been assisting in them. And we talk about this idea of perception is projection and how we only see 
in the world, what exists within us. But at the same time, like as coaches to client relationships, the client will not achieve if we as the coaches don't believe that they can get the goals that they've set because we will coach them within the boundaries of that limitation. So it's really fascinating how you were able to use this and not at all focus on the problem, but be completely focused on the solution. This whole idea of bringing the focus back because the mind is not going to see negations or negatives. Like I don't want him to shoot. And it's like, you're projecting shooting into his reality. So that's, it's incredibly fascinating (laughs) how you did that. Yeah. It reminds me when you talk about, it doesn't matter what the scale of your goal. It can be very small increments. Like I would thank him every time that we met for taking Mm. the drive to my office through the traffic Mm. of San Francisco, which is a it's infamous. I would say, thanks, man. Thanks for coming in. I really appreciate it. And your commitment never lost on me what you're willing to do to make our session. He felt admired. It was traffic, but it doesn't matter because then I could say other things about his character and that I could see. I don't like to blow smoke up people, but to really see things based on what they would say. And so, yeah, this building, uh, it's not so much breaking boards, which as you say, we both were wrestlers. So we know about that kind of arena of competition, but this is similar, but almost the inverse that it's compliment giving. Correct. I never won a match by complimenting my opponent. (laughs) (laughs) That's correct. It certainly is a difference. (laughs) Yes. But this is my method. My method was, yeah, we want to bring the best out in people, not Mm. just not project the minimal or negatives, but bring out the best. Yeah. Admiration, gratitude would start to bring out certain looks and hopes and dreams much more than if you keep talking like this, you're you're going to get arrested. That never was even mentioned. It was all about courage to move to the to seek his career from the Midwest. And I should say, I've had thousands of cases that I could tell you about. Most of them were marriage counseling situations or suicide. This homicidal situation is only a few where I had something where other people could be killed. Usually it's the hand someone want to kill themselves or they found an affair in in their marriage and now they want out. The love behind it is going to go away and we're going to have you become a a loving couple for the rest of your life. And your kids won't be split up going from one house to the other, just because this bad thing happened. We're going to learn and grow. That was the marriage vow till death do you part for better or worse. So you can hear, I can speak very fluently about this kind of goal with this other category of problems, which is more love focused. There's no weaponry. It's just, I, uh, I love that. That's actually, that's fascinating that you're, you state that in the beginning, I'm sure internally as well as externally to, to the people that you're working with. And I realized that we're talking about a lot of these stories of your work. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your background and how you got into the work that you do and where what's next for you at this point in your life. My background was um, study of ethics in, at Princeton, mm-hmm. but also I was pre-med. So I took a lot of science and it was the 60s. And that, if it, that briefly it points to the, the psychedelics were not there in my freshman year. <laughs> <They're> anywhere. <laughs> and then by, by my sophomore, junior year, they were everywhere. Yeah. The whole world was changing. We had, I guess I went to college with this vision that the world could be, could, could change. It, it, and it was mindset. The, the world believed that uh, the adversarial approaches were necessary. And 
with the psychedelic experience, you could see was just a, a belief system that was held in place historically. And I would look for exceptions. So I was a religion major and read Martin Buber or Walt Whitman, uh, more, much more than the theologians that, I don't know the names, uh, but uh, Tillich would be just one e example. And so uh, I took poetry of spirituality from Walt Whitman. Yeah, he was big into this, the poetry of friendship. Hmm. And so I was very inspired by more by poet than by theologians. And I minored in psychology. So I, I did a lot of laboratory research. I did early research on DMT, the first study probably ever wow. on DM, DMT. And it was an animal study on aggression and DMT. That was 1970, just so you get some dates in mind. I was making my way through the 60s with idealism. Uh, and then leaving, it was Princeton. I had a lot of possibilities. Uh, open for career, but I thought I was supposed to go where the problems were the worst mm. rather than uh, mere income seeking the life of, of easily identifiable success. So I became a probation officer. I worked in the juvenile courts of Atlantic City for five years and then in the flop houses, the homeless hotels on the Atlantic City boardwalk for another year. And yeah, it was the worst imaginable people had lobotomies and kids being locked up and suddenly they realized that being a juvenile delinquent is really scary it's not just bravado and yeah i learned and i was and then i discovered yoga and meditation at that time around 1970 71 72 and the yoga that we have today is a far cry from what was being shared back then because we didn't know whatever the teachers would teach us, we would try it. For example, after my first course, we were taught to get up at 4 a.m. That was the best time to do yoga. So I, we didn't think anything of it. There was nothing to, they don't do, nobody, other yoga teachers aren't saying that. There were no other yoga teachers. Yeah, <laughs> that was the source. <laughs> that was the only thing out there. So within two or three months, I'm getting up at 4 a.m. And because that's when the sun is perfect. It hasn't come up yet. And we're doing several hours of practice. And then <laughs> that the source of life of the bodily life was fertility of the body. That makes sense. And what, what that played itself out on is that yoga was a discipline, a stoic, you could even say discipline. And Zen, and the Zen is a, goes to the word dion in Sanskrit, which was a, means being aligned, dharma uh, of the mind in, in Sanskrit goes to Zen in the Japanese. But all of that was alignment with what? It was alignment with, yeah, the diurnal rhythms. So we were getting up at 4 a.m., but also the fertility rhythms. For women, it was a complete harmony with the menstrual cycle. And for men, we found out that there's correlate spermatogenetic cycle that I never knew about. And that was a 30 to 40 day cycle. And you get in tuned with that and you realize that, that these hormones in the body in the yogic model, if they are cultivated, they give rise to light. It's called from Bindu to Ojas. And this is the crux of a lot of Greek philosophy too, where they're talking about pleasure, that pleasure shouldn't over allure us because there are higher pleasures, no, noble virtues. And virtuous pleasures are value driven. And actually virtue is a, goes to a Sanskrit word, virya, which refers to a certain stage of maturation of so vir virtuosity was is deeply related to having a right relationship 
with fertility, whether male or female. Now the payoff is that in, uh, by the time, if I didn't find out about it until I was 25, but I suppose if I knew it when I was 10, 11, it'd be different. <clears throat> but the, by the time I was 20 some years into it, I had a maturity of my masculinity that blew me away. Firstly, it made me heart-centered because they believe that the natural path is beyond Freud. Freud said the puberty happens at when you're 10, 13, 14, and it's just ordinary fertility. But mm -hmm. yoga has a spinal per puberty that goes all the way up the spine, has a puberty of the heart. We could say oxytocin, the love hormone, becomes very big. That's why I was able to help so many people because I, I really could. I loved all kinds of really dangerous or frightened people, and they felt it. And from that, yeah, we could solve problems because the mood was so high. But all the deeper level, what you asked me about was I started living this original yoga. Buddha, you start looking at these saints worldwide and you go, oh my God, Plato, you name these people, they all were had a deeply respectful relation with their fertility, male or female. That's fascinating. What, they were all what we call brahmacharya. I don't even like to translate it because it's not, it's mistranslated. And the Catholic Church thought this too, but they didn't get it right. They don't have any yoga. And so these poor people attempting to respect their fertility, they wouldn't, they, they didn't have enough help. And we see it happening right now. But in the in, Indian traditions, there's plenty of techniques, plenty of things. The whole of yoga is to make this energy go up your spine. And yeah, the first place is in your heart. You feel love for everyone. And it's not like a, a labor. It's a, like a puberty. It's just your chemistry is up at that level. And then you get to levels where your prostate, there were a couple of guys here, so I don't know, with women, it's the same thing, but it refers to the womb. That's a little piece of trivia. The prostate and the womb are, are what they call homologous tissue, the embryo. Yeah. Like nipples, male. Why do we have nipples? What's that all about? In the womb, we're very androgynous for a period of time. It has nothing to do with modern categories, I should say, because that's a problem that we don't have the right categories for gender. So there's a lot of confusion, in my opinion, that I published on. So with the prostate, it carries womb-like qualities, and the womb carries prostate-like qualities. Pro womb can pump and pump, particularly called labor contractions, and it expels a baby like a prostate would in ejaculation. So we know that everybody knows the, the womb has that capacity. But what we don't know about the prostate is the prostate has gestation qualities. Interesting. The prostate, and this is fake, what I call fake tantra, which is, may, you may have heard about it, is basically mechanical to make the man last like an hour, whatever, by controlling the ejaculative reactivity. Mm -hmm. So I think average is five or 10 minutes and then the prostate releases. But once, when it's matured, it becomes womb-like. Mm -hmm. It becomes a gestation uh, Blad organ and such, and the energies of fertility are go through alchemy. You could say, not just, and they mature and they become light. They become bliss, and it goes xylemic. Xylemic is a natural up upward flowing force in all plant life. You know why, That's why sap can go from the root of a redwood 200 feet in the air against the flow of gravity. The human body has a xylemic flow from the prostate up to the pineal gland and throughout this through the spine. They call it kundalini awakening. And likewise, it's only like 1% of 
all of what I'm sharing is not, it's only known in scholarly circles where the translators. I was going to say, this is, this is vastly different than anything I've ever understood. And the thing that I find really interesting is it seems like there is almost like this misconception in these schools of philosophy around the idea of pleasure, right? A lot of them are almost looking at pleasure as like this bad thing, this thing to avoid, and instead to espouse these abstract virtues <laughs> that, that aren't really a direct experience, but more of a conceptualization. As you're talking about this, if I find it fascinating because it seems like a lot of some or some of these schools of thought or people who are interpreting them are missing the mark on the experience of humanity itself. Yeah, yeah. When you get into the teachings on pleasure, because you can go sideways easily. Most of what I'm sharing with you is in, in the oral tradition through and guarded with vows of secrecy. So that's what happened to Tantra is people started teaching, yeah, how to not come for an hour. And mm. you started developing egomaniacs that had proficiency, but they couldn't marry and have children and learn how to love, you know, love till death do you part. They, they were jump, jumping around. So it was not much of a maturation. It was just a, a mechanistic skill. So what I'm talking about, yeah, would be for people who are ready to embrace the whole life. So if you're going to have pleasure states that last many hours, and plus it's going to create another realm, which mm -hmm. is a, a, an ejaculation from the hypothalamus, which uh, that's no yoga teacher knows about it, but no, no one could debate the opposite of which I just said. Mm -hmm. The scholars all know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So there's a gap there between the 20 million people doing yoga and all the scholars that now can, are starting to translate the full path. Mm -hmm. But back to the pleasure is, yeah, during this maturation, if it which includes pleasure, not just stern, valorous life. That's right. <laughs> just it seems overly serious. And it's one of the reasons why I added Zen to the, the Zen Stoic is because to me, Stoicism, as it's taught or as it's interpreted, seems excessively serious. It's not there's no injections of humor or talking about joy in, in the same way that we're discussing it today. So I felt Zen has an element of looseness on that seriousness. <laughs> it transcends the boundaries of just logic and rationality. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I can, you know, try to round it out and say, yeah, Leela is the yogic term. And uh, that's where, yeah, play. In other words, I, if you saw the sessions I did with that shooting shooter guy, we mm -hmm. were mainly being very playful. Oh, perfect. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and, with, and with these couples coming in to be very lighthearted, sets a tone that this is going to be easy. Mm -hmm. If I come in, oh my God, oh, this is horrible. That's empathy that I don't particularly, I don't empathize with the horror or the anguish around people. I empathize enough that they feel I understand. But then I start saying, what do you love about each other? Or in the midst of a divorce, I'll say, I'm just curious. And I'm being very playful myself. I'm just saying, yeah, I just wanted to find out about how did you meet? I know you're in a divorce right now, but how did you guys meet? And I found out that play or being playing around, you could even say, with my role, which mm -hmm. my colleagues would never do. Right. I'm talking tens of thousands. I, I, I was the president of the organization. I would say the stuff like right now we're getting into is the method, we call it trickster or playful. And they go, you did that with somebody who's talking about a gun? And <laughs> if you're lighthearted and playful, it, it's a big way of changing the mood and people feel they don't have to be that depressed. Mm -hmm. And then of course you have to follow up. I don't mean to be glib, 
You have to follow up with the issues of a relationship or the lack, like with coaching. You can't just say, oh, I'll be happy and go make your way. What if the person doesn't read? What if they don't have simple math skills? What if they don't know communication? They don't know how to do a resume. Whatever you find out that someone doesn't know, you can't just pump them up. You have to, like you say, cross T's and dot I's. And some of it can be pretty basic. But then people learn these things because someone cares and is pointing it out. Try this. And yeah, the playfulness keeps people, I think that's why, just to make a little axe that I grind, they have something called complex PTSD. And I think 80% of that is caused by therapists completely afraid of being playful with their clients. That is, that's super fascinating to me because it it makes so much sense, especially with at least the, the type of results that I've been able to get with clients and some of my colleagues who do similar work and even the way that you're describing it, it seems to all have a central theme that everybody shares, which is this idea of behavioral flexibility, like being willing to go into certain states of being that maybe violate the, the set rules of certain academic practices of psychology, which I think is really important because I think what you're saying around almost some of the PTSD being exacerbated or even caused by some of these sessions. It fascinates me because what I've come to learn recently and put into words is that all problems are bound in the neurology and our language is what binds them in. And so if we just speak within the boundaries of the problem, then we stay in the problem and we actually make the problem worse. We build up energy in the problem and tension in the problem rather than going beyond the bounds, which playfulness and lightheartedness and flexibility and perspective will allow one to do. So I think that's fascinating that the results that you were able to get with people that you worked with had a lot to do with this ability to be playful and to be flexible and to be willing to go into places where other people felt like they weren't allowed to in this profession and thus created some real amazing transformations. Well said. And it was making my own way, meaning that I did what I was trained for the first six, seven years, not hundred percent. I wasn't, I had other kinds of training, as I said, besides the psychology of empathy, which keeps you in that loop, that same little area of pain and suffering, you know, But yeah, and getting, but I tended to see over time that when I gave too much empathy, which really was very little that people need, what they really want is to be helped to be happy. So their empathy was definitely important. And if I didn't give some, I would lose the blues clients. Yeah, wow. And it is, it's horrible what many people have gone through. But I'll give you another example. I had a, a, this was in Oakland. It, It was actually, I guided an intern, which even is more critical. I wasn't the therapist myself. Intern had no, not even a license. It was just beginning. And it was a double, it was a two generations of incest family. Mm. The daughter had conceived with her stepfather 10 years ago. And now the 10 year old child was acting out in school sexually. And they were going to, so my intern got the case and I said, okay, this is what we're going to (laughs) do. We're going to have a family session. The perpetrator stepfather is going to be that his daughter, stepdaughter is going to be there. I I can't remember if we had any of these teenage kids because there were a couple of other kids in in that family. I can't remember. But I said, here's the goal is we're going to tell the stepfather, not only will he be forgiven, he will have a family instead of no family. And the shame he must be feeling and now his son made, that he conceived with his own stepdaughter mm-hmm. is, not, is sexually acting out. It was predictable. That's typical. 
Mm-hmm. And so I was saying, look, it, I've got a way out of this for you where you get to have your family and you can we're going to help all your kids with your step with your stepdaughter, all that stuff, all that confusion. And I will we'll going to be helping you. And it's going to be scary, but you can apologize for the chaos, everything that you feel. And we're going to help your stepdaughter to admire you for the courage to apologize. And it's going to take a good hour to keep going through this. And you're going to hear some anger and some really not pleasant things that you're going to have to handle it, let it in, because you didn't expect this back 20, 10 years ago. But the consequences, truly, they live on. And now you're aware it was not just a little little thing you did. It has huge negative consequences. So you hear all that. We're going to guide you and you're going to have a family and we're going to stand up for you. This is a chance in a lifetime for you to have a family. No one on the planet is ever going to give you this chance. And so my intern, I wasn't even there. She was a hundred miles from where I live, even where the session was held within two hour session. They were planning their 4th of July family picnic together. Wow. (laughs) The Oakland court found out, of course, the Oakland court was involved because it was a criminal potentially criminal situation. Nobody could believe what we had done. My intern was on the, it was cross-examined on the witness stand and ridiculed. And mm-hmm. she stood up to all of that because it was all true that had really happened. Like I said, I've got hundreds, if not thousands of stories. I try to tell them so I don't forget them. I'm glad that you get to tell them here on this, on this show <laughs> with me. Because yes. I want to put out not- what's possible. You know, I don't pretend it's easy. I do say it's worth it. And there's a set of, I wrote books about it, published widely. There are other people. Leo Buscalia was, became famous for doing things like this with murderers in prison and the families of the victims who were mm-hmm. murdered. People have done what I'm doing uh, that are more well-known. But yeah, I want to keep this alive because we are in an era of not so much coaching, but certainly therapies where, where empathy for suffering has gone it it can't deliver what they want it to. In fact, it does. It causes more problems. You have to have admiration. You have Mm -hmm. to have looking at what's beautiful about people, not just how they were hurt. And the therapist has to give up the, it's a, I hate to say it, but there's a, I was into it. There's a pleasure you feel in being able to go into dark places with clients. Yes. That's on, that's for the therapist. And the client will do whatever the therapist says. Like I say, a little bit of that, yes. But that is not going to teach them how to be happy in life. That's a whole other set of skills about receiving and giving compliments and admiration and gratitude that all of us have to learn about. Let me just take a moment. Thank you. Let me thank you, Victor. <laughs> really, when I, be, when I met you, I felt so lucky. Firstly, because we were wrestlers, like you said. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's an immediate brotherhood and we're lightweights, right? That's right. We, I, I used to be 125 or whatever it was. Yeah, I wrestled the same weight. So you feel like, wow, there's the only person in this big, in this group that I re- really knows what that's about. So I just wanted to take that tangent to say, yeah, I can take that tangent. Anybody can. And mm-hmm. it adds to our interview mm-hmm. because I really do feel close to you from that alone likewise i remember it was a it was an instant bond that that, that first conversation 
yeah, weight loss and having to make weight and then be in these combative situations and you only have six minutes and then you're like exhausted. Exactly. Hardest six minutes you'll ever have done consistently. Right. A wonderful practice, I think, for enduring and for mindset. I, there's something that came up today. I was listening to a podcast and they mentioned this African proverb that I found fascinating. And it seems like it's very related to our conversation, but the proverb basically said it, it was, they, they had, they were talking about this idea of how everybody has this innate desire and need for belonging. Like they want to belong to something, um, whether it's in a, a relationship or in a group, a community. And the proverb was, if a child is not embraced by the village, they will burn it down to feel its warmth. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, holy shit. I'm curious, what is your perspective on that idea or that proverb? I worked in juvenile prevention, juvenile justice, juvenile delinquency prevention for five years. So I take it very literally. Kids who are beaten down or who make mistakes and are engaged with and they have lots of issues poverty there's all kinds of things but juvenile crime and like the shooter all these different th things i could analyze and tell you yeah if they will be up cries for help you could say and yeah if you can give the help that's needed which is usually but credible admiration and then and uh, you have to teach people how to believe particularly kids mm -hmm. that you're not just manipulating them this is street savvy that's a whole other category is you have to have street savvy when working certainly with people that could be destructive or have created crime already because they're very used to being conned by the authority figures whether it's teachers or they just want to buy and get out of them so i don't want to come across like a, i don't know what's going on so yeah these kids that want to burn down and ruin my life for that matter they're very they're dangerous in different ways so you have to be savvy if i can say it that way yes and i would teach yoga practices and then do it in a way kids would open their eyes. They go, what the fuck was that, man? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what I did. They gave me a grant. I had 170,000. That would be like almost a million dollars today to do whatever I thought would help. Because you were asking about, uh, yeah, if the kid isn't taken care of, he'll burn down the village. Yes. That was the gist of it. And yeah, and it takes a whole village. Yeah. And then winning the trust of kids that are have been treated as if they're little criminals. And they're cons by then too. It's not like they're just a regular kid, but there's a lot of defensiveness that you have to work your way through. But th this was really one of my more beautiful memories and in my own innocence, you could even say. So, so I had just discovered yoga and in the way I had told you about getting up at 4 a.m. and all this. And I was teaching it in this lockup in a, near Atlantic City in a pleasant, what was it called? Egg Harbor, New Jersey, in a rural, in their lockup environment. And uh, I would, I said, look at, I'm going to come and sleep outside the facility so I can wake up at 4 a.m. And you got to let me in so I can meet with the kids and we'll do yoga the way it's supposed to be done. So I didn't know what I was doing. I was sleeping out in the winter. It was freezing out there. <laughs> wow. That's some stoic voluntary discomfort. <laughs> Test of myself. But yeah, so I got in and every kids were laughing and it was really, they were being, we were being somewhat like children again, but uh, lots of things. So I found out that the parents have to be heavily admired because you want to rehabilitate the family that they come from so that they can love their children again, because the kids are like sources of um, shame and the, the parents are failures. The kids are in jail. And I'll tell you a quick story. 
Yeah, I had a, 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 a kid going to, he was going to be incarcerated. We were going to the sentencing hearing and the father and the kid and me are in my probation office. And, and I'm only like 27, 28 years old. I'm just discovering this method myself. I hadn't been trained in it at all, but this one event stayed with me my whole career, like 1976, 50 or 46 years ago. The, fa the father, you know, they're really, shame is in the room and embarrassment. And they're going to go before the judge and the judge is going to say, I, I sentence you to six months, blah, blah, blah. And the father is there. And so the, somehow the father's smoking cigarettes like a, a madman in my office. He's extremely frustrated and nervous. And the son, 16-year-old guy, is just doesn't feel horrible and, and moody and all that. And for some reason, the son says, Dad, you have a cigarette. Uh, and, and the father yeah, says, okay, here. And so the two of them lean, like you can picture this, lean and they light the cigarettes and they're taking an inhale. And all of a sudden, I just decide to say, Sheldon, could you thank your dad for the cigarette? Mm. And because it was small. Yeah, small gesture. Small, good thing. And I don't know, I did, I've never done it before. And he said, yeah, thanks, dad. And the father, I saw a little tear in the father's eyes. Wow. Because the father had a moment where he did a good thing for his son and the son could be a good son by thanking his father for this simple little thing. And it was very small. This is meditation. I focus 100% on that little tear. The, all the rest of it evaporated. The jail, the lockup. The, I just saw that little tear. And then I saw when I said that, I said, look in your father's eye when you thanked him. You got to his heart. And then the sun jolted. And then I'd say, yeah, this is the real connection between the two of you. And uh, this is going to, you know, and then I would and I said, not all fathers even will come to a hearing like this. Most wow. of the time, the kid has to walk down alone. You're looking at your father. It's not easy, but he's here by your side. And uh, the son also is jolted. So is the father. They're not ready to be complimented at a time like this. Oh, I can, I can imagine. And so they're, I'm saying this is really a loyal love of father and son. And then I would say, yeah, this image will stay with your son during the next six months mm -hmm. and you will fulfill why you came is to be a support to him. And he will never forget while he's away. And then we'll continue on and learn from every, learn from these mistakes and have, a, have your family back. So that was 1976. I can still see that scene in my memory banks. And what I do is I think, like I even alluded to it, when I had that gun case 40 years later, I did the same thing. I thanked him for coming to my office, for coming through the traffic. That it, and then I later on, I told him why. I said, the reason I thanked you is you gave me a chance to keep you out of jail. That's amazing. <laughs> you, know, you gave me a chance to help you not lose your license for your career. Because that once, if you had been arrested for that or thrown out, your life would have been ruined. So I want to thank you for giving me the chance to help you. So this is, you know, yeah, different versions of seeing there's one drop in the cup, not half empty or half full. There's one drop of something. And if you focus on it, it becomes 10 drops. And after a while, hearts are opening. And chemistry is different in the brain and the nervous system. It's not adrenaline, it's oxytocin. They call it the love hormone. People look different, they feel different. And then you can make declarations of how to go forward with life. That's beautiful. I really like that because when I think about the way that humans interact with one another, 
this idea of showing enough empathy to get context and to show understanding and then moving on into admiration and gratitude for the person across from you, I imagine is a way of showing them like, yes, I understand. And I'm also going to choose to speak to the best parts of you. And there's a transformation that occurs with that. I have anytime anybody's ever asked me about what I'm focusing on when I'm coaching with somebody for the majority of the session, with the exception of the empathetic part where we're going into the dark of what they've been through, I'm speaking to the best parts of them or the best version of them. And in essence, calling it out into being, which is, it seems like you've done a very similar thing, if not the same thing with everybody that you've worked with. Exactly. It's just 50 years. You get 40,000 hours of different situations and there is a range. So you made me think of another one of seeing the best, not over empathizing. This was an intern I had. He was learning to be a therapist and he said, Stuart, could I have 10 minutes to just tell you a personal thing going on? I said, sure. And he said, my girlfriend just told me she's pregnant and I don't really know what to do. And she says, I'll have the child. You don't have to be a part of this. It wasn't, it was not our goal. Or, and he's thinking, yeah, that's probably the way to go. And, I, and so what I really want to use this as an example is you have to find a way to bring the best out in people. And often you have to do it in a way that they can make any, two different choices. You can't make it just be one way that you prove yourself to be the best. That's right. And the abortion situation is, it's in the news, it's in the Supreme Court. And you have to be very egalitarian about this issue. What should I do? Should I be a father Mm -hmm. uh, or should I go with the flow? She'll she'll have either raise the child or have an abortion, which I think it was going to be an abortion, if if Mm -hmm. I recall. You know, I said, you know, and and I don't want to, I'm not a religious believing approach. I'm using psychology. So what I said to him was to bring the best out was I'd say, look at whatever you do is you have a choice. It's all available. There's no stigma. There's you can do what you want. Your girlfriend is happy to do. She's not going to hate you or whatever. Or she'll make whatever you want. Because he had said, oh, I don't know if I'm ready. Mm. Now, when I hear that, I hear what I call boilerplate. Mm. Boilerplate is thoughts that people think that they're their own thought. But I don't think that. I think they're grabbing boilerplate off of the media, off of all kinds of messaging that's out in the world. (laughs) Exactly. Nobody thinks I'm not ready. They're taught that that is what you should think. He's 33, 34 years old. He's ready. Yeah, absolutely. He wants it. it. So I say, listen, it's a real choice. It's not like you you can't do it. It's a default. I could never do this because you'll live with that the rest of your life. Oh, I couldn't do that. What what couldn't you have done? And Mm -hmm. and I'll say, you have to believe that you could have done it. That's right. But doesn't mean you have to do it. You know, that's the religious approach is you could have do it. You better do it, Scott. You have to do it. But in the psychological arena, I can make it harder. You can do it, but you don't have to do it. The other people on the pro-choice, they don't like to get that much into that you could do it. They love to make it like it's the worst thing possible. It's going to ruin your life. It's sacrificing the life of the mother. They make it really horrendous. So everybody has an easy time choosing to terminate. So what I'm saying is, you can terminate there. It's legal. Everybody's going to go with the flow with it. But I want you to believe that you could do it if you wanted to. Why? Because I think that's a very powerful aspect of human identity is the yeah. ability to grow to the level. Darwin, all Darwinism, the foundation of the view of success of life on this planet 
is Darwinism. Nobody really argues much about what I'm saying. The genetic survival of the gene pool is who reproduces. So the and parenting and stabilized families are the basis of how children grow up. And yeah, we have the generations of people that are worried about that they're not capable of it. That's right. So what I said is you could do this if you wanted to. That's the only thing I add. And then think about, do you want to do it or not? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but don't think that you couldn't have done it. Like it was cast upon you, this idea. Yeah, you, you, oh, you could never do it because yeah, it's a limited belief system. So a couple of weeks went by, or I don't remember exactly, but he said, guess what? I'm going to be a father. Wow. <laughs> he decided to marry his girlfriend. And of course, then his heart really opened completely unpredicted. He, and she's a, a good person. It wasn't okay. like... A, a one night stand. And so I'll tell you that now it's 12 years later, he's got two kids now. <laughs> he doubled down on the fatherhood quite literally. Exactly. So, <laughs> so I don't mean that, that I'm saying, oh yeah, pro-life or pro-choice or anything. I'm just getting to your point, bringing the best out of people and then thinking it through in, in a wide range of humans conundrums. Yeah. It's fascinating because it seems like a lot of people, they close their hearts, not through their own sincere thoughts, but through boilerplate thoughts, through collective psychology, they actually close themselves off and they voluntarily accept these as their own, which they're giving sovereignty to these things that are limiting them and causing excessive suffering, right? There, there's going to be a natural amount of suffering that occurs as a sentient being, but they're casting in or allowing in excessive suffering into their lives simply by giving their sovereignty to the boilerplate psychology. And allowing those cliches and belief systems to be part of their model of the world, which if when we put it like that, it sounds insane. We're, we're allowing these like very non-specific ways of being that are just in there in the ether <laughs> to be our own individual experience, which there's nothing that says that we have to accept that. And so that, that's quite interesting. Yeah, and it's popular and also in professional psychology, like this path of empathy. I've been watching it and I publish books on this, usually take flack mm. because I'm, yeah, I'm a whistleblower within my own profession. Good. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> yeah, this is a back to stoicism. I had to do what was right, even if it cost me jobs and people that didn't understand me. But I did have a background that's unassailable. If the Dalai Lama does projects with you, it's hard for people to say too much that you must be on the wrong right. track. That's right. There's an inherent credibility there. <laughs> and over again, yeah, yeah. Presidents of countries and the Princeton background, all these different things, they have to wonder. And yeah, that's why I like talking and doing podcasts because mm -hmm. now a lot of my things are coming to light. Yeah. Yeah, teaching meditation. I was the first person ever to teach meditation in a lockup or in a school system. That's I taught it to police. <laughs> I taught it to the police departments uh, of juvenile department and nobody even knew what meditation was. Now it's everywhere. And now and it's everywhere. Yeah. So I know that I was ahead of my times and that's part of, of the integrity, I think, which you're all about. If you think something's right and you're ahead of your times, you, you may spend your whole career wat watching the pendulum finally swing and you're into what you were interested in. Correct. But then if your gaze is still continuing, you see where it's still happening. It's very true. I, that, that's interesting because it reminds me of, and I think you, you heard me speak on this at the last retreat that we were at together, the Zen Stoic Intentions and Delusions. And we talked about this idea of sincerity versus performance. And sincerity is doing what's right according to what you genuinely believe is right. 
and not performing or not having an intention to please the masses or the organizing body that employs you in, in your case, being willing to be sincere in what your thoughts and what your feelings were about certain issues that came up. Exactly. Yeah. There's, and then it's, a, 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 there's faith, but it's, you start getting the thoughts to keep talking about what you had, what your goal is about so mm-hmm. you can achieve it. Yeah. That, yeah. You, there'll be other people who are given the courage by your courageousness to be sincere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you start yeah, uplifting what, whatever profession in the architectural profession. Yeah. We thought, I thought green was, this is at 1988 it was no green. Yeah. And I knew Jerry Brown was the mayor of Atlantic city at that mm-hmm. time. And he had actually run for president about maybe 10 or 15 years before. So he was pretty famous. He was the governor of California mm. 30 years before that. He launched a communication satellite. There was no such thing as communication satellite. And they ridiculed him. The newspapers called him Governor Moonbeam to make, a, make him look like an idiot. They, and we now that, know that, now there's thousands cool. of communication satellites. Oh, yeah, of course. And it seems very prevalent, this idea. And actually, something I've been wanting to ask you, like throughout this conversation, I think this is a good point to, to bring it in, is I notice when I observe society, when I observe it, regardless of whatever like realm it's in, whether it's politics, whether it's a crime, whether it's just somebody espousing a different belief system from their family unit, there seems to be this obsession with punishment and shame and ridicule when people step outside the bounds. From your perspective, what's that all about? <laughs> because it doesn't, it seems very counterproductive <laughs> to, a, sure. to the blossoming of a good society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't subscribe to the, the telling truth to power. Mm. It, it, the way it's understood is being done properly because it's always some criticism. Mm-hmm. It's always some shaming of power and you're speaking truth to power. It's like the Boston Tea Party over and over again. What really is power is when you give admiration. And it, and I'm not like sweeping stuff under the rug that's bad. I'm saying if you want to win friends and influence people, that was Napoleon Hill. You don't speak up in such a way that everybody's pissed off at you and you polarize the room, mm-hmm. but you feel it's very self-righteous. I don't subscribe to that. And I've done some really serious things in that with the Rockefeller family, preventing litigation against his family mm-hmm. by a bunch of hippies that were really ready to go. My background is endless on these topics, uh, but now we're getting into speaking up in a group and getting pushback. And so what I just wanted to sort out is, yeah, if you're going to speak up uh, to a group and shame them with your righteous criticism, I'm not that interested in that. I don't think no. it works. I don't but what I do know that does work, say it in prisons, I've done this in prisons with the whole staff, including the warden. On, I don't say, what the hell are we, how are we treating these kids? I say stuff like, I want you all to go home and tell your wives. And the kids are there too, the locked up kids. I'm saying, I want you all to go home and tell your wives. And when you get out of here, tell your parents that you love them and that you want to be have a beautiful family. You don't want to be in prisons anymore. And we'll help you do that. How many other times they've ever heard that before or since? Probably zero. Oh, yeah. You must be angry at your mom. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're angry. They love anger because one person, Fritz Perls, made anger be very popular. And this is where history is important. That one person, Elon Musk, he makes he decides to make uh, electrical cars. It starts happening. Mm-hmm. Fritz Perls did that with anger. Mm. And he was an incredibly angry human being. And he looked really tough. He'd do groups and call people phonies at Esalen Institute, where all this started, by the way. 
wow. coaching. <laughs> All this history goes back to Esalen Institute. That's where they got into, yeah, trying to, and, went, and they were definitely into the wrong approach. And the best way is to yeah, see the best in people, put it into accurate words, small level. But then, like I say, the rubber eventually hits the road where they have to do actually harder things, whether it's learn how to read, mm-hmm. which they don't know how to do, or learn how to be a mechanic or join the military and let them help you or have a girlfriend and not mess it up or a boyfriend and get them two together. These skills, they're not just everywhere that you need. Once you start feeding the best in people, they start getting hopeful, but that doesn't end there. They have, I found, yeah, that's where I got into marriage counseling is to help them form a home life. I have a lot of kids that were born as a result of what I'm now telling you about. <laughs> a lot of families. 50 years is a lot of thousands of people. And, and they start to get it. They're equal to life. And they're not instant therapy year after year talking about their trauma because we're talking about, yeah, what you were saying, but the strengths that they have. But then they have to believe me. And then there's all kinds of quirky things. Like when they thank me, I'm their therapist. I have to say that means more to me than you would ever guess because I want them to feel that more powerful across from me in their gratitude, what, what the impact has on me. So my, you're not even, you're trained not even to talk about that. Which is so backwards because one, something I had learned recently is that gratitude, while it is, it feels really good to feel yourself, it has profound effects when someone expresses gratitude to you. Like when you receive gratitude, it's a totally, and I don't understand it, probably to the degree that you do, I'm sure. But when you give gratitude, it's one thing. When you receive it, it's like this whole other level of things that are happening. Is that, could you speak to that for a bit? What is the difference there? Yeah, there's a lot. Every inch has to be learned. You get shy. People say, oh, what a great guy you are. You get shy. It's hard even to say thank you. You don't know what to do. Mm. So I found to teach people to say thank you for saying that. Mm. And then to look at the other person, because when you say thank you, you're a giver. You think you're a receiver. It sounds like, oh, thank you. I'm a receiver. But when you say thank you, it's an act of giving to the other person. That's right. And you look at it, it has a huge impact on the other person. So now you have to get out of your bubbles. You're too different. You're in an ecological giving and receiving. So mm-hmm. he says, yeah, you're really helping my life. And the other person, the therapist says, wow, that makes me feel so beautiful. Take a look at me right now. Mm-hmm. And the client has to learn to take a look and say, you caused that look. See those tears in my eyes? You cause them. That's right. And you'll cause that anytime you say you thank people. And if you don't do it, that means you're depriving people from now on. If it's not just I love that you said that. Yeah, I love that you said that because I every time I have a conversation with a client or even like a friend who has difficulty receiving compliments or receiving help, I actually bring up something that the retreat that you and I originally met at in Sedona. Uh, I think we we talked about this and this was probably my biggest takeaway from that weekend was that to give is to receive and to receive is to give. There's this kind of harmonious relationship that's happening between those two expressions. And whenever I'm talking to clients and they're like, oh, I just give and I have trouble receiving or I don't like getting help or whatever. And I go, I asked them, I said, how does it feel when you give to somebody? Like when you you give to them and they're really appreciative, they're like, oh, it feels amazing. There's nothing like it. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like, would you consider yourself a taker? And they're like, no, not at all. I'm like, okay, you're taking that away by not receiving, not, not allowing others to help you. So you're actually giving something that 
maybe you've never even thought of just by receiving something that is also good for you, some admiration, some compliments, some gratitude, and being able to take that in, it, it creates a more harmonious relationship and quite frankly, a beautiful experience between the, the two parties who are exchanging that. It's mutually empowering. It, yeah, deeply receive is empowering. But it, it, it reciprocally it empowers the giver because they see the impact. Mm -hmm. If you go, oh, it's, it's, you know, oh, thank you. If you say, yeah, it was nothing. But if you say, wow, that really touched me, that gratitude, you're letting the person know they, that their expression was very powerful. Or you That's can make right. it weak and just well, change the subject. Yeah, right? which is, this is how, one of the worst things you can do. <laughs> it just erode the nourishment. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it becomes ongoing. That's great. Then it becomes a way of life. Then you realize... Yeah, a little teaspoon given back and forth all the time. It's a way of life called the path of love and gratitude. And then you realize it's more enjoyable than having complaint sessions and I'm not feeling loved. And dealing with that, instead, you say, how about what do you love about me? And That's then right. you start saying, thank you for saying that. Instead of it's about time, can it's tell so I can just do all this. Oh, yeah. No, I shared the story last time we were together where I was talking about Heather, my girlfriend, and how I love cooking for her and doing things for her. It just it brings me a lot of joy. The way that she thanks me and expresses gratitude every time I do that is as if it's the first time that I'm ever doing it. And as a result, not only do I enjoy doing it more, but I've actually like specifically in the realm of cooking, I've gotten exponentially better at the craft of cooking because I'm getting this, I'm receiving this gratitude from her and it makes me actively want to do it more, not just do it more, but do it better. And so I get more curious. I start to, I'll catch myself like daydreaming about like stuff that I want to cook. And that's never <laughs> happened in my life until she started expressing that gratitude every time I would make her a meal. So I just started getting fascinated with the whole process of it. And it's been, it's obviously felt really good at the same time to, to be able to do that. You guys are a very beautiful couple, and I felt lucky, I don't know, honored, lucky to, to, for the time we spent to having conversations with the three of us. Yeah. And what you're just now describing, yeah, it's just, it makes me brim with happiness for you guys. Thank you. Thank you. That, that I received that. <laughs> but it means a lot for you to say that. Heather was was very excited that I was going to be having you on the show. She's like, Stuart's my bestie. <laughs> So she, she was definitely thrilled for that. There, there's a, a couple other things I wanted to ask you, because I know you had mentioned something like this is a, 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 I would say a different topic, but not really. I think just different context from what we're talking about. But we, I remember at the retreat, we were talking about when, where the world is going and what the uh, political climate looks like between the almost like the division between parties and belief systems and how it's seeming to become more and more apparent. And you had some ideas as to potential solutions that you would it, it, like basically bring in with that opportunity. What could you speak to some of those? Because there, there seems to be a lot of division, especially in the political climate in people's varying belief systems. And it goes back to this idea of like people wanting to either punish or overly empathize. And there, there seems to be nothing in between. Yeah, yeah. If I don't answer what you're thinking about, let me know, because it's Will a big do. topic. It's a giant topic. But what, in general, I say when there's a, like polarization, it means that there's a solution that needs yet to be discovered that mm. would be a win-win for both points of view. 
Correct. So that I like, like pro-life, pro-choice. That's what I know a lot about. And also conflict resolution. Let me start with conflict resolution because there's a good example. Like the World War I Christmas Day truce, mm. I think is 1914. You have horrible trench warfare of World War I was horrible because they didn't have these big weapons. You were like, you could see and hear each other. You weren't like 30 miles away in Ukraine. So they're like, it's horrible. And they're in these muddy trenches dying. They can't get out. They're shooting back and forth. For some reason, there was a truce on Christmas Eve. Mm. They all stopped shooting for supposedly overnight or something. And a weird thing happened. The Germans and the French started get coming out of their foxholes and exchanging gifts. Wow. <laughs> they were giving chocolates and cookies back and forth. And these were people that an hour before they were taking each other's heads off and had killed each other's probably best friends and all the rest of it. So this is a real life example of a solution to at least for a couple of weeks, they wouldn't go back to killing each other. They had to be ordered back to warfare. <laughs> They're like, yeah, I, I, how could I go back and kill that guy? He just gave me a present. <laughs> Exactly. And so it was the, the real Christ spirit had an impact. So mm -hmm. that should be studied. There are other, the Camp David Accords was, uh, if you know about that, that Egypt and Israel had one of their many wars over the last 5,000 years, around 1976. They were killing each other like they always have. Mm -hmm. And then there's Camp David Accord came out. They stopped and they still, it's been like 46 years. Nobody's been sh between those two countries. They don't mm -hmm. kill each other. These are Jews and Arabs. Yeah. This is unbelievable. Like this but how time. did it happen? <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. But what happened was Jimmy Carter and the other two guys, president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, and Minichim Begin of Israel, out of a fluke, they Carter had a little bit of a trickster plan. He shared baby child photos with them. And these three grandpas signed autographed photos of each other's children. And they started weeping. Wow. Why are we killing each other's children? And then they stayed, they were failing. They couldn't make the treat, peace treaty. Suddenly they could. Mm. There's a play called Camp David. You can see it. There's a lot of articles about the Christmas truce of 1914. So those are two big ones. Mm. Now back to, you'd have to follow it up. But if somebody does, yeah, we could, you know, make an award. We'll give it to Putin and Zelensky. Look at, we're going to have a win-win. You, you may not get what you thought you wanted, but you're going to get something else. The whole world is going to be crying about what heroes you are, that you created a win-win truce. Yes. And everybody knows there's problems on everybody, both sides. We're going to do it the right way. That's what I did my whole career with divorces, getting them back together. They want to have abortion. I'd say you don't have to. Now mm -hmm. there's two kids born. A lot of kids are born. So I'm very familiar at the local level of, of creating these win-win outcomes in new ways. So yeah, you, you could create a, 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 an award. The, the, Nobel, the Nobel Peace Prize is a weak version, mm -hmm. but you could do it and really make it be that you have from then on, there's a Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Zelensky honorary holiday. Mm. Uh, forever, you know, of what these two men did, they stopped in their tracks and they grieved and then they mm -hmm. created a Slavic brotherhood and yeah. they got rid of all the criminality that whatever is needs to go, but mm -hmm. not in the way of warfare where you're shooting lots of innocent people that it should be a very specific. That's how police work. They go for the criminal, not everyone in the neighborhood. That's right. And so that's, that's a, a thumbnail 
response to my views about world history, but the pro-life, pro-choice is another area. I've got other many areas, but this one is in Tantra. As we talked a little bit about Tantra, I was developing the theory for you, mm-hmm. that uh, the outcome of that theory is a, a body where the male prostate mm-hmm. never ejaculates unless it wants to. Mm. And what happens instead, there's a lot more that happens. There's an orgasm of the heart that's available. And that is so powerful that the genitals aren't carrying the whole weight of where sex even takes place. Wow. So it's a, so Tantra is a huge different body. And it was in the pagans, fertility cults, the Greeks, the Dionysian cults. They were aware of what I'm talking about. But what an orgy was to the Dionysians is not what we think it was. Because they had all this, their hormone systems were creating natural entheogens. Mm. They were, the brains were overloading, creating oxytocin, which is MDMA, or Mm. serotonin levels were like LSD. They Mm. were high as a kite because their glands were so mature with these puberties I'm describing. Mm. This was what, this is my, I'm publishing on it, I believe in the next 20, 30 years. What I saw with yoga in 1970, nobody, they laughed at me. Mm-hmm. Now it's in every prison in the world. I mm-hmm. think pretty it's everywhere. Nobody laughs about yoga anymore. And I'm saying about Tantra and the tantric body. Mm-hmm. What happens is couples have lovemaking. It's, mm-hmm. I don't know, I think it's anybody who had it happen. It's like choosing between psilocybin or a martini. <laughs> you start seeing there's a very high choice. <laughs> Yeah, it's a pretty, they're both interesting, but psilocybin for most people would be like really interesting. So sex sex of sharing these hormones, and there's thousands of ways, hundreds of ways. The easiest way to describe uh, on a little call like this is kissing. Mm. The salivary immunoglobulin A, big word for this, the entheogens of the brain to come into the French kissing, the realm of French kissing, of wet Mm. kisses. So you get to a level where you're kissing somebody who worships you Mm. because you're the source of life, which you are as a man. And Mm. likewise, the female source of life, not just a girlfriend. When you're crying because you realize this is the link to God and God is where where life even comes from, whether you're Darwin or you're Adam and Eve or whatever you want to think about it. Mm. You're kissing the source of where your parents conceived you and great, great grandparents. It's all through this. But now you're having uh, up at the brain level. Mm. where the ejaculation is really near the source because sex hormones are start up here in the hypothalamus. They send the signals to the genitals. Mm. So Tantra knows this. It's known it for 5,000 years. And all yoga is about what I'm saying. And no one will talk about it except scholars who know what I'm talking about. I think 10, 20 years, everybody's going to catch up to what I'm now talking about. And the payoff will be that lovemaking will buy, won't, um, risk on unintended pregnancies that ends the whole battle again about Mm -hmm. the the, even for the battle of right to life pro-choice contraceptives because it's this is better sex (laughs) so Mm -hmm. getting to your what i said originally when you have a polarization somewhere at a big level politics and groups i believe it's usually you have to look for an answer that Mm -hmm. people don't yet know about and it satisfies both groups yeah the sex the liberals want to have sexual lives they don't want to just be straight laced but Mm -hmm. on the other hand the people that want their sexual freedom 
they have to fight for abortion? Shocking, but they have to. There's no way around it. But what it really points to is the earth is not flat. You don't go over the edge. You, you, it's really round. And the metaphor I'm saying is there's ejaculations in your brain. Now, I have to say, that was what I meditated on for 45. To, now it's getting closer to 50 years. Wow. Of, I meditated not on my breath. I meditated, like I said earlier, I meditated on fertility. And that's what made my life, I think, be fruitful in any area I turn my attention to. From it's amazing. Business projects. I'm a therapist. I'm doing mediation. I'm working in prisons. I'm bringing yoga ever, first ever into a prison. I, my work is certified by the Russian government on, on admiration therapy. I, I do projects with the Dalai Lama. How did this all happen? I'm not an, 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 that much different than anybody else, but I did do this one thing that is very rare, at least in the world. I yeah. had these properties happen. My chemistry is not the same. There's a story in Be Here Now, this Ram Dass Mm-hmm. But when LSD was brought to India for the first time, this guy from Harvard gave it to a guru in India, gave him three tabs of very powerful LSD. And the guy said, nothing happened <laughs> because he was already, his brain was secreting so much LSD that he could read Ram Dass's mind and, and tell him what he ate three days before in some <laughs> village a hundred miles away. He would say, oh, you were having this candy, weren't you? before three days ago in, the, in this little sweet shop. And this guy lives in the Himalayan mountains. He doesn't know shit, yeah. <laughs> but he reads the guy's mind. That's why the whole new age exists. Mm-hmm. Ram Das, Harvard professor, takes LSD, looks for answers in India, meets this guy who reads his mind. And he says, if this guy can read my mind, he must know more about the mind than, than anyone at Harvard or anywhere else. That's and what amazing. I'm saying is, yeah, that he, his own, the, the guru's mind was create his hypothalamus was creating basically LSD. And when couples share this in their salivation through mm-hmm. kissing, you, you can't, you're not going to have abortions. You're not, because intercourse will be understood that, you know, you want the hormones of fertility to never be blocked, either mentally or through, through pills mm-hmm. or anything. Because you want it flowing through the body, because then it can cause this kind of brain secretion. That's profound. It's definitely paradigm shifting to think about in that way. It's it's definitely blowing my mind a little bit because I just never even conceived of that being a thing or that being possible. But it's definitely now an area of curiosity and exploration. I didn't think computers were going to happen in in 1960, I'll tell you. Yeah. Talking on internet. Video. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing is changing. And and yeah, yoga, when we realize, oh, it's just going to be a matter of time. I'm just deleting, I'm just translating a little bit more than my friends are. And they're not therapists, so they don't talk much about psychological impact. Yeah, this is the missing ingredient. It starts to be exchanged. Then you have children conceived consciously. What does that mean? The awe of creating life and it's not blocked by, you know, it's not really a baby or not. All that is no longer needed because you're not worried about all that. So you're feeling, and then that child who's born, the parents feel the awe of that moment, nine months, and then first year, it never goes away. In two to three generations of this, we have a different species. Yeah, completely different consciousness running through the, the collective at that point. So that's really beautiful as a compelling vision for humanity. I before we begin to wrap up, I have one last question. Let me just say one thing about oh, yeah, yeah, go for one it. One more thing, just for your crowd. 
that my, this is my entrepreneurial is if soon any Hollywood production studio that makes a movie with special effects about couples, like what I just said, they're going to make millions and millions of dollars uh-huh. and they're going to change humanity because that's how the sexuality came to America or the world was through Hollywood. They that's were making right. movies, breaking taboos, showing a little bit more, a little bit more until the X rated and everything's out there. And that, and now we have porn, which is the biggest thing on the internet. And it's all limited by what the puberty that is like at the belly level. Mm-hmm. And what I'm showing is completely valid. You get a couple of Hollywood studios to make a nice, interesting movie about a couple that discover this. You're going to really change. Oh, yeah. The yeah. You'll well, plant the- a seed, an idea within people that'll have some profound effects. So I like the vision. It definitely, it's captivating to think about that, to think about the possibility of a consciousness expansion and an evolution within our species just through through things that we seem to discount or even discard in our everyday lives. That's it's beautiful. So my, my question that I like to ask at the end of these interviews is what does it mean to you, Stuart, to live a liberated life? Thank you. Thanks. That's a beautiful question. Like I'm 73. So you have people of different ages for me. It's like, in one sense, I lived a liberated life. Mm. I'm still living it, but I can look back over 50 years. Basically, I, it means that I did what I did. What I wanted to do was to help humanity. Mm-hmm. And I had I was given a scholarships at Princeton, which is something I took it seriously. It was a number one university in America. And they gave me money. And their motto was in service to the nation or in service mm-hmm. to the world. And I thought I should do that. I worked in the youth prisons. And my friends, they went and they became very successful lawyers. Sam Alito is a year younger than me. He's on the Supreme Court. So my peer group became very successful in the ordinary realm. But I went, I thought I should help where it was the worst. Mm. So I was free. I was freed up from the mandate of an Ivy League degree to become a Wall Street banker. My roommate is a, a partner at well, in one of these places like Goldman Sachs. He makes $100 million a year. Good for him. But so that was my environment. My liberation was I'm going to work with kids locked up in, in, mm. in lockups. And then whatever I thought would work, I take a yoga class. I'm going to, this stuff works. I don't care if nobody ever heard of it before. So my whole career, oh, green, I, nobody ever heard of it. Well, so what? It should be heard. You know, people think they should have a divorce. Well, I think they should find out about unconditional uncondi- con- love. Let's yeah. try that. Or let's have a world converse, conference on family, the, the human, family of humanity. And who am I? So I partner up with some friends. We get the Dalai Lama involved because of who I am. My reputation in India was very big. So this, I did whatever I wanted with as far as I wanted. Yoga, I took it 4 a.m. I married yoga. I got the fertility way off the charts in my own body. I, and then after 25, 30 years, I realized I could have partners because my body was mature, not the stuff that's taught nowadays about talk, but the real thing. And I wrote a book about it because it was so compelling that you can have this exactly liberation with a partner, without a partner, the bliss and the body. You can't tell which is better. It's a choice of abundance. (laughs) So now, and I'll just add one more thing is the real beauty and it's how we met is I have uh, this friend, Michael Osterling, who we have in common. And I've known him for him 20, tomorrow. You're going to see him here. 25 years. He is one of the most loyal and high level 
person about giving and receiving. He turned me on to the uh, Arate group where we met, and it's giving me a place like meeting you. It's giving me a blossoming of sharing my whole life mm-hmm. of having lived a liberated life. And my enlightenment was not self-reference. It wasn't who am I? Mm. It was what can I, what can, how far can humanity be uplifted in the worst places? Mm. That's what I thought liberation was for. Not personal is great, but I developed the, these powers of reconciling very difficult days dangerous situations and proved it to the world. It wasn't just my word. So I feel liberated from limitations. And who am I? I'd rather talk about you. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Stuart, thank you so much for being on the show. That's a beautiful answer and a beautiful legacy that you've created in living your liberation through helping people in the worst areas and even continuing to do even at 73 years old, there's more to, to be gained. And it seems like this is a new evolution of all of your experience being transcended into something that, that can help today, even just helping the people that you, you do in our circle with the Arte group and how these people impact many more people and it starts to spread more and more. So I, I sincerely appreciate you sharing your message and your story and the various stories of your experience on the show today. It's definitely been enlightening for me and is already causing me to think in different ways. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. And you're an excellent interviewer because you, I just because I've been interviewed maybe a hundred times or something, <laughs> you ask really incisive questions that I loved. So thank you for, for doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I ask whatever inspires me in the moment, which is why I love these interviews to be unplanned and completely organic because then we can get a very real and sincere conversation between the two of us, which is, I, I would say, one of the first steps in solving a lot of the problems that we experience as human beings is having a real and sincere conversation with one another and coming from that place of love and and admiration. So thank you for having this conversation with me. (laughs) My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for taking it out to the public. We can have more ripple effects. Absolutely. Stuart, are you doing anything these days online or anywhere that people can find you or contact you to maybe have you on their podcast if they're listening to this? Yeah, I, I, there's a Stuart Savatsky dot or what's it called dot com or something website on World Family. So you can if you Google my name, you'll get and my academia dot com, which is a website of published papers. You can get free publications. Those are the two main ways. I'm very interested, as I alluded to at the end, of people in the film industry that would really not knock it out of the park if somebody p- partnered with me. I have a screenplay. I'm happy to share that with anyone that's really that's interested. Right. Excellent. Stuart, thanks so much, man. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It is my mission to help as many people as possible to live a liberated life with unshakable inner peace through the content on this podcast. Subscribe to this channel with notifications on to be notified daily whenever we share a new episode. 